Good morning, everybody. Are you going to come and say hi to me? That's right. You put it out there. That's right. Good morning, everybody. If you can find your seats when we can begin. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see everybody here. And um, we've um, been going through a journey through the birth of the New Testament church uh, in the book of Acts. So we're um, coming to chapter 21, so we're getting closer to the end of the book. Um, And so we're going to be focusing today on chapter 21, and specifically on verses 10 through 14. Uh, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn to that chapter. You can also find it in the Bibles under the pews. Uh, it's uh, ch- page 788. Um, but let's open up with some prayer first. Father God, I, I thank you for this morning that you have woken us up and you've given us breath in our lungs to be able to, uh, be able to glorify you today. And on this Lord's Day, we can focus upon you and the, the gracious work of Christ that he has done on, on our behalf, that we were sinners destined for hell, undeserving of grace, and yet you sent your Son to die on our behalf and to uh, bear the punishment that we deserve so that we can be called children of God. And in that, that Christ ascended to the throne and is reigning right now as King of kings and Lord of lords, as sovereign over all things, and there's nothing that we, can fe- we need to fear for he is in control of all things. And he is working right now through his church, through the power of his Holy Spirit, to make disciples of the, of the nations, drawing sinful people to himself and, and calling them and reconciling them to God so that one day we may be glorified in heaven and be able to spend eternity with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, glorifying the name of Christ for all time, in a new heavens and a new earth. So lead us and direct us, and let us have ears to hear the preaching of the word in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're going through the book of Acts, and as I mentioned, we're going through uh, chapter 21. If you can open there, we're going to just go through a journey uh, through this, this active church that's going. There's a lot of things happening in this chapter. And so I'm going to try to cover as much as we can during this time together, and I I pray that it will be an encouragement to you all. And uh, so as we see, Paul is embarking on his third missionary journey. Uh, He visited Ephesus, and he wrote uh, 1 Corinthians. He traveled to Macedonia, and he wrote 2 Corinthians, and then he wrote the book of Romans in Corinth. Around 58 AD, uh, he fixed his attention on Jerusalem. They sailed on a direct course through the islands of the coast of Asia Minor to the port of Patara. And Paul and his team, which included Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is documenting all these these, uh, journeys, uh, got off at the seaport and got onto a large ship, most likely similar to what we found them boarding in uh, Acts um, 27 and 37 in Rome, which held about 276 people. So this is a large vessel they're getting onto. And as they sailed through the Mediterranean Sea, they saw Cyprus in the distance, but focused on their mission, they passed it by and continued their five-day journey uh, to Tyre. And once they arrived at Tyre, the ship needed to unload the cargo, 
where they, uh, where they stayed um, there for some time. And they say that they went and they sought out some believers uh, and to be able to stay with them for about a week. And we find that around uh, verse 4 there. And the bonds of Christ among the brethren were strong. At the end of their stay, all the Christians escorted them to the ship. And under the sun glistening under, over the waves, they knelt and prayed for one another on the beach. And there they continued their journey on, their treacher, on treacherous waters. They voyaged 25 miles to Patolomeus, where they greeted the brothers and stayed there a day. The next day they resumed the sailing, sailing 35 miles, arriving in Caesarea. So Philip was one of the seven chosen apostles uh, by the apostles to oversee the, the widows, which you may remember in Acts 6.3. And then he evangelized in Samaria in Acts uh, 8. And then he evangelized to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8.26. And later he traveled along the coast proclaiming the gospel until he arrived in Caesarea. And there he took up residence. And there we find Paul remaining with him in his home. See, the Christian church was not a passive, comfortable institution. Christ redeemed the people who he knew before the hands of time. And after his ascension, he continued his work through his, through his people, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The believers had a deep love for the church, their brothers and sisters in Christ. The church was not perfect. They faced persecution, suffering, dealt with sinful behavior, and often led to divisions. However, they had a proper ecclesiology. They understood the, the, who the church is, the importance of the church, which has oftentimes been diminished during this pandemic recently. Paul understood the importance of the following of the will of God rather than human emotions. He valued Christ, the gospel, the souls of others more than his own life. And so what I want you to remember during this sermon is a spirit-filled life will discern everything by the word of God and according to the will of God. And so if you flip to that chapter 21 and look at 10 through 14, let us read the word of God. And it says this, As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belts, bound his own feet and hands, and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not only ready to be bound, but even die at Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we felt silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. And that concludes the reading of the Word of God. So what I want us to understand is that spiritual maturity differentiates truth from deception. And we see this in the verses uh, 10 and 11. So Paul's in Caesarea. Uh, this is a, a seaport that was built by Herod the Great, the capital of Judea. Agabus, a prophet, was who was from Judea, uh, came to Paul. And we know Agabus is an authentic prophet from, because we know him from the previous chapter in Acts eleven twenty eight. 28. That was 15 years earlier when he predicted by the Spirit 
that there would be a severe famine all over the earth, over the world, and it happened under Claudius. So Agabus takes Paul's belt, and just like the Old Testament prophets would reenact um, what the prophecy is, he grabs his belt and he binds his feet and his hands. And he warns Paul that in Jerusalem, the Jews will bind him in this way and will hand him over to the Romans. So he, there's, many professing, uh, there's many that have professed to speak for God. <clears throat> over the last several decades, there have been prophecies on Christ's return, on prosperity, on judgment. And in desperate times, people who never cared about the word of God all of a sudden now cling to the latest prophetic word without any discernment at all. Some have claimed to hear that God would return on a specific date. I, I actually remember a book that was very popular when I was a kid. and was like 98 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 98, something like that. And, uh, and followers sold their possessions, and, and the, the date arrived, and they, would, they were left not only on this earth, but they were in debt. And they were, instead of questioning the false prophet, what do they do? They question God. And recently, false prophets popular with evangelicals prophesied that the outcome of the election and COVID, and when it didn't turn out the way they said it was going to happen, this is an actual quote from one of them. He said, I obviously was wrong about my prophecy. I'm truly sorry that as I'm growing in this prophetic journey and was not accurate about something so big. So you can see what he's saying there, that he's growing in this prophetic journey. But we see the word of God when God speaks it is, and it happens. People don't grow into a prophecy. It's a gift from God that he orchestrates through the person. And so we have to be careful when we hear these voices happening. I remember as a kid, there was a, a minister that's very popular to this day. We know him very well. We used to go to dinner with him, all this stuff, when I was a kid. And he's on TBN in different places. And uh, he said to us that in the book of Psalms that the chapter numbers correlate with the year. So if you looked at the chap Psalms chapter 95, then you could find a prof prophetic word for 1995. Of course, that's ridiculous, and, it's, and it's, uh, those, the chapter numbers are not even inspired by God, and you know, there's a whole list of things there. But you can see, even as a child, you just believe this guy is respected. I know this guy. I must believe he's got to be right. And so we have to be careful, and we have to discern these things. And see, the most of the time, when these prophecies are unfulfilled, prosperity is not achieved, and healings obtained, the false prophets and teachers blame their followers, claiming that they didn't have, did not have enough faith. And so teachers are flooding the internet, tel television programs, bookstores, our music, uh, local churches teaching new and recycled heresies, and professing Christians are clinging to, clinging to any message that tickles the ear. Paul warned us that for a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to miss. And that's in 2 Corinthians 4.34. So Paul was for, focused on his mission to Jerusalem. However, the fellow disciples warned him of danger. And why did he seemed to ignore these warnings. Agabus was a trustworthy prophet. Others warned them by the Holy Spirit. Uh, were these merely warnings? Uh, was God not telling Paul to go to Jerusalem? Uh, these are questions that we should ask in our lives. There are times when someone tells us uh, they heard from God, 
and we look for signs and mystical methods, and we hear new teachings that are attractive, and we believe them without any concern for what God's Word says about the topic. Paul warned us in Acts, uh, if you look at Acts 20, 29 through 31, so right before he's about to do this and journey onto Jerusalem, he says this, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, and they will not spare the flock. And from your own group, men will come forward, perverting the truth to draw the disciples away after them. So be vigilant. Charles Spurgeon once said, The sermon is not a matter of simply telling the difference between right and wrong. Rather, it's telling the difference between right and almost right. So just as Paul had to be spiritually mature and biblical to discern these warnings, we must be mature in our faith and compare everything according to the Word of God. The Word of God must be our firm foundation so that we will not be tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So our reaction must be biblical, not merely emotional. If you look at uh, verse 12, his brothers and sisters in Christ wept, pleading with Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Agabus gave details of what was going to take place in, uh, in Jerusalem. And then if you look at verse 4, we see the saints telling him through the Spirit not to embark to Jerusalem. And there's much debate about the accuracy of Agabus's prophecy and Paul's reaction. His friends told him through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. And if they said this through the Spirit, should Paul obey and not go? Was Agabus' prophecy further confirmation of why they told them through the Spirit not to go? If Paul goes, is he in disobedience? These are a lot of questions to ask when you're looking at these texts. But the Bible is clear. The disciples gave a warning through the Holy Spirit in verse 4. The Holy Spirit revealed to them that something terrible was about to happen to Paul. Their emotional response was, don't go. They went beyond that which the Spirit revealed. The Spirit made them aware of the trouble and that they should, then that should have driven them to prayer. Instead of being led to the, by the Spirit in their response to the revelation, they followed their emotions. We incline to go beyond what God has revealed to us in his word. We use terminology like, I feel my opinion is, I think it says, we hear a false prophecy or an unbiblical message or unbiblical song and we rarely question it or compare it to the Word of God. We believe it because of how it makes us feel or maybe it's in line with our own opinions. The moment someone confronts the issue and says what the Bible says, we, be we become defensive and divisive and dismissive. Why is the one who de desires to be biblical in every aspect of life abnormal? We must follow Jesus and utilize the scriptures to discern, confirm, and counterattack every so-called word from God to determine if it's in line with his will. We must discern the warning and count the cost. As we see in verse 13, Paul, therefore, had to discern the prophetic word and the concerns of the Christians. He listened to the cries of his brothers and sisters, and they were breaking his heart. There was this temptation there for him to kind of give in to their emotions. Maybe I shouldn't go. They were breaking his heart. 
but he stood firm. When they told him in the spirit not to embark for Jerusalem, Paul wisely discerned whether this was a warning of trouble ahead or a command from God not to go. So Paul, so what we see, Agabus did not tell him not to go. He said, thus says the Holy Spirit. So we knew it was God speaking. And then he said, in this way, the Jews will bind the owner of this belt in Jerusalem, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. Verse 11. In other words, Agabus confirmed that Paul would go to Jerusalem and gave him specifics on the coming events. In the previous chapter, we see that Paul understood his mission. And as he was about to depart from Miletus, he summoned the representatives of the Ephesian congregation, so the elders and deacons, and he informed them of his mission to Jerusalem. And Paul knew that once in Jerusalem, he would remain in chains for Christ. He told them they would never see his face again, and they were deeply distressed. Weeping loudly, they fell upon his neck. That, the Greek from that is that they, they fell upon him is to, in this desperate attempt to just hold on to him because they knew this was his mass, last moments. Embracing and kissing Paul, but notice they did not say, don't go. They trusted the will of God, regardless of the cost. As we saw at the end of, uh, in, in book of, in chapter 20, 37 through 38. And there were times that Paul desired to travel someplace. There was a moment where he was, uh, wanted to travel to Asia, and it, the Spirit of God prevented him from going there. And we find that in Acts 16, 6. So Paul always obeyed the leading of the Spirit. And he, so this was not an act of rebellion against God. We know this because if you look at Acts 20, 22 through 23, he says this, <clears throat> but now, compelled by the Spirit, or you could also say he was bound by the Spirit, he was, I'm going to Jerusalem. So there it is. He knows he's going to Jerusalem before Agabus' prophecy. And what will happen to me there, I do not know, except in one city after another, the Holy Spirit has been warning me that imprisonment and hardships await me. The Holy Spirit compelled him to go to Jerusalem. He was being obedient. However, he did not know what was going to happen until Agabus informed him of the prophecy, through the prophecy. And over and over again, in city after city, people, God was preparing Paul through these warnings. So the warnings by the people were nothing new for Paul. He saw past the emotional response and focused not on the dangers he counted the cost, and he answered the call. He said, if you look at Acts 20, 24, I consider life of no importance. I consider life of no importance to me. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to bear witness to the gospel of God's grace. God has called every Christian to ministry. You exist to bring him glory. You cannot believe that you are simply saved by grace and therefore are not required to obey God's commands. He commands his people to gather together. Yes, internet church is not church. Hebrews 10.25 
We are to love one another, John 13, 34. We are to bear fruit, show that we are Christians, Galatians, uh, John 15, 16. Carry each other's burdens, Galatians 6, 2. Use our spiritual gifts to serve one another, 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. Be holy, 1 Peter 1, 15. And proclaim the gospel, Mark 16, 15. Jesus said in Luke 14, 26 through 30, if you look at that, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? We are a people of his own possession. Our life is not our own. Paul counted the cost and understood that Christ is worthy of suffering and death. Are we bold enough to do what Jesus demands of us to follow him? Is our passion for the lost so deep that we will risk for the sake of lost souls? We must trust in God's sovereign will. As we see in verse 14, Paul responded to those trying to discourage him from traveling to Jerusalem by saying, I'm prepared not only to be bound, but to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And then upon hearing this, they responded. You know, they realized they could not dissuade Paul, and they dropped the subject, and they surrendered to God's will, and they responded, the Lord's will be done. So Paul arrived in Jerusalem one last time, receiving mixed reception, The Christians warmly welcomed him, while others wanted to kill him. Rumors were spreading that Paul was preaching a gospel of grace to Gentiles entirely apart from the law and teachings, and teaching the Jews that were among the Gentiles to abandon their heritage. Of course, he was not doing this. Some Jewish believers continued to observe the ceremonies until the uh, temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., And although they did this, they didn't view disobedience to the ceremonies as a way of salvation. It was just a part of their heritage. And Paul preached the gospel that we are saved by faith and not by works, and that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so he was preaching a gospel that there's only one gospel, and and it's by by, uh, grace alone. However, he was not telling people to abandon their heritage and become un-Jew, not be a Jew anymore. And so, at doing this, he ended up having to eliminate the rumor to focus on his evangelistic mission by going through a ceremonial ritual. He basically just did it to show them, let's just get this out of the way. I'm not saying don't be a Jew. I'm, not, I'm just saying you're not saved by these things. And so he did the ceremony ritual, and however, this does not prevent uh, a, an uprising against Paul. An angry mob saw him in the temple and accused him of teaching Jews to forsake their heritage, that he opposed the law, and that he was defiling the temple uh, and blaspheming, ensuing a riot. And the whole city was provoked against him. The people rushed together, seizing Paul, most likely binding him as Agabus had prophesied, and dragged him out of the temple. And they were ready to to, to kill him. The temple guards immediately shut the doors 
because the death of Paul would have defiled the temple. So the guards were not willing to help him. So here he is outside the gates of the temple. He's bound. He's being beaten fiercely. And the word got to the Roman cohort that something was happening in Jerusalem. There's an uprising. There's a riot taking place. The rival of the Roman soldiers, perhaps about 200 men, stopped the mob's effort from killing Paul. So God used the Romans to save Paul's life. The violence was so intense that the Romans took Paul, bound him in two chains, and carried him to safety. They had to carry him to get, out, get him out of, this, out of this crowd. And they brought him to the barracks. Agabus' prophecy was fulfilled. The Jews seized Paul in the temple, most likely binding him. However, when the Jews turned him over to the Romans, the soldiers also bound him in two chains. And so there we see, although the, the Romans bound Paul in chains, the Jews were just as responsible. Just as if you remember in uh, Paul's sermon uh, at Pentecost in Acts 2.23 when he said that, the, that you crucified Jesus even though it was by the hands of the Romans. So they were held responsible for it. Through it all, Paul rested in the sovereign will of God. These events led to Paul standing up before the people to share his testimony and preach the gospel, which led to a series of travels and imprisonments furthering the gospel to the ends of the earth. A summary of the last years of Paul's life in Rome before Nero kills him is found in the final verses of the book of, of Acts. If you look at Acts 28, 30 through 31, He's on ha in house arrest, and he, said he stayed for two years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came, in, came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness and unhindered. Now that's the sovereign will of God there. He's on house arrest and he's still proclaiming the gospel unhindered. Paul's journey to Jerusalem seemed like a failure by human opinion. However, he discerned the will of God and he obeyed. He valued Christ who is worthy of our complete devotion and obedience over his own life. This last year has shown us that human instinct is self-preservation. We love our normal, our well-being, being comfortable, complacent without commitment or threat. Are you willing to discern the will of God and then follow him where he leads regardless of the cost? Many are the plans of the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 19.21 So then do not be foolish, but understand what is the will of the Lord is. Ephesians 5.17 We must be eternally minded. When we think about that word, being eternally minded, we, we cling to this world in such a way that we, we, we cling to our health, wealth, and all these things that we know. But this is, life is just a vapor. The, today, tomorrow, you could be gone. And what, what will you live for? Are you living for Christ, who is eternal, and you're dwelling with him eternal? Are you living for the moment that is fragile and for a moment? What are you doing for God in this moment, in this brief time that you have on this earth? See, we must be eternally minded not conform to this world. In this short time on this earth that God has given you, will you cling to your comforts or will you cling to Christ? How do you know what the will of God is and what should be our reaction? We must 
be conscientious of the opportunities laid before us. We must be willing to follow wherever he leads. We must surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We must discern the opinions spoken by those around us and compare them to the word of God. We must devote ourselves to prayer, declaring as Jesus did, not my will, but yours be done. We must pray, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. We humbly submit to his will and rest in knowing that our God is sovereign. Nothing he plans, nothing we do, nothing we suffer is in vain. Our God is the sovereign ruler, the creator and sustainer of all things. In him we live and we move and we exist. According to his good will and perfect wisdom, he ordained all things before the hands of time. By the power of his might, according to his will, he spoke all things into existence. He hung the stars in their place and knows them by name. When the waves crash upon the beach, he wills it to stop at the shoreline and come no further, and then tells it to go back where it came from. Our God channels government rulers' hearts like water through his hands, directing them to fulfill his purposes and plans. Those who believe in Christ were predestined according to the plan of the, the one who works out everything in agreement with his purpose of his will. We were known, chosen, and redeemed because of God. God willed it and fulfilled it. God, our God, works in us through the Holy Spirit, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. And it, it, it is he that we are here to serve. He is our king. He is our king of kings. He's our Lord of lords, the one who accomplishes his plans according to his good, pleasing, and perfect will, orchestrating everything, every aspect of our lives for our good and for his glory. Where he leads, we will follow, regardless of the trouble that awaits, regardless of the cost. This is the one who we place our trust and complete dependence upon, resting and knowing that he has he has us in his hands, and that nothing will snatch us out of it. That is the king that we serve. This is the God we serve. This is the God that Paul put his confidence in. This is why he could say, I, I will count the cost. I don't care what's going to happen to my life. I, Christ is worthy of it. I was destined to hell. I was destined to spend eternity in hell, and yet Christ came off of his throne and he lived a life that I could not live, obeying the law perfectly, which I could not do, as my substitute. He lived the life I could not live as my substitute, so that I could be made right before God. That he, God would look at me and see the righteousness of Christ. He treated Christ as if he lived my wretched life, and he treats me as, I, as if I lived his righteous life. Christ lived perfectly sinless on this earth so that I can live imperfectly and sin less. And then he went to the cross and he bore the wrath of God on my behalf, the punishment I deserved. That's the God we serve. So when you have that knowledge of that this is my, des my destination, every man and every woman has sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is death, and yet Christ came and he died on my behalf, so that I can live in him, I will give it all for him. And so that is the beauty of the gospel. That is the beauty of the power of what Paul's life represents. 
and what we should follow. So I pray that for each one of us. So let us pray. Father God, I thank you for this time that we can be together. I thank you that your word is sufficient. It is like a sword that cuts to the heart. And it scrapes off and cuts off those things in our lives that we are being clinging on to. Our comforts, our sins. And it exposes these things. It breaks us. And it reveals to us our need for Christ. Oh, but we have a great Christ for our great needs. So I pray, Lord God, that you will lead this church, lead your church all around the world, out of our comfort zones, and to count the cost, and to know that there's millions of people that if we don't proclaim the gospel, they will flood into hell. And let us be passionate about that, that we will go and proclaim the gospel so that all men will hear the good news that Jesus Christ can reconcile you to God. We thank you for each person. Be with them, guide them, protect them, be with their families. In Jesus' name, amen.